there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey friends, this is going to be your final new podcast for me for the year of 2020. I'm going to go ahead and take December off for some personal time and decompression. And I thought it would be timely to talk about decompression for an entire episode. Specifically, um, we're going to be mostly talking about decompression walks. I have a handful of Patreon questions regarding decompression walks that I'm going to go through first, and then I'll kind of give you my overall points that I would like everybody to understand about this concept. So just in case you're a new listener um, or new to my material, a decompression walk is something I call a walk that happens where the dog is allowed free movement of their body in nature. So sometimes that means off-leash in the woods, It might mean off-leash in an open field or open space. And sometimes it might mean that they're wearing a non-restrictive harness and a long line and you're giving them as much freedom as you can because you're not super trusting of their off-leash reliability yet. Um, Essentially, it is defined by its effect on the dog rather than the activity itself. So if my dog is more stressed, more amped up, exhibiting more anxiety types of behaviors when I get home from a decompression walk, then I can't really call it a decompression walk. If my dog is constantly on edge when I'm out in the world, they're scared, um, or maybe they are just scanning for next scary thing to appear, then it's probably not having the desired effect. So when I see a lot of free natural movement, which could involve a a variety of gates from my dog, when I see a lot of sniffing, um, that's when I know that this is probably working out for my dog. But I really know from their behaviors at home how it's working. And sometimes it takes a long time for you to see those behaviors. So if you're new to decompression walks, keep trying. And I hope that some of the tips that I share today will help you. The first Patreon question um, is a pretty long one, so I'm going to pare it down a little bit. It's from Aaliyah. Aaliyah says that she has a Pitbull German Shepherd mix, um, two to three years old. The dog's got some anxiety issues, like 
including separation anxiety, which she's currently working on. Um, and she's realizing how important decompression is to her. So she started taking the dog out for some long line walks at least every other day. And Aaliyah, that's awesome. I'm really, really proud of you. That's great. So she's got a couple of questions, though, and now I'm going to start reading her question. She has a decent recall, and she's talking about the dog, that we continue to work on, but has a very high prey drive, and that's pretty much the only thing I can't recall her from. I can call her off people and dogs who are distracting for her, but nothing like rabbits and squirrels. I love the idea of a GPS collar, but I'm wondering what exactly is aversive about using the vibrate function as your recall? Uh, I think my voice is not distinct or loud enough, so I was thinking of training a whistle recall, but if I'm getting a GPS caller, it seems to make sense to train her to recall to the vibrate. I do not want to be a coercive or aversive trainer. It really is a genuine question. How is it different than setting my phone to vibrate so that I can feel that I get a message or putting a vibrate caller on a deaf dog to communicate with them? Good question, and the overarching answer is that we don't get to decide what is aversive and what's not. The vibrate function on a collar could operate simply as a cue for the dog to return to the handler. It could also be operating in a sort of negative reinforcement realm, meaning you stop the vibration if the dog starts heading back to you. It all depends on your dog and what they think about the vibration sensation, and it also depends on how you train it, how you train the recall. But I am going to say that a whistle should be just as salient. Um, there isn't anything, in my opinion, for a hearing dog that is necessarily more salient um, about the vibration. I could be totally wrong about that. It probably, again, depends on your learner and your situation. But I also want to be very clear that while your cues need to be salient enough for the dog to pick them out in um, when they're out in the world... All of this depends on training. It depends on training a lot more than the cues we use. A misunderstanding of humans a lot of the time is attaching too much importance to the cue itself. And I'm not saying cues aren't important, they are. But a lot of times we think of cues as driving behavior and they don't. They simply open the door for the behavior to occur so that the reinforcement can then drive that future behavior. So try to wrap your head around that a little bit. Also, as far as GPS callers go, I'm not aware of one that has a vibrate function and does not have a shock function. So if you're uncomfortable with that, um, you're probably stuck with a collar that does not have the vibration function. You could certainly buy the collar with the shock function and not use it if you don't want to. Um, I know plenty of people who use the Garmin Alpha versus I have the Garmin Astro um, that does not have any quote-unquote training functions on it because the Alpha just has more bells and whistles. It just does more things. Um, and to be honest, if I had to do it over again, I might have also purchased the Alpha. Um, but it, you know, it's kind of neither here nor there because they're so expensive, so I'm not going to go replace them. Um, and so Garmin is the model that I suggest, but certainly do your own research on that. I'm not sponsored by Garmin, so no free ads. <laughs> um, and, you know, go forward and kind of check that out. And, you know, best of luck as far as that's concerned. But you are going to need to just work really, really hard on that recall to do with wildlife specifically. And that means you need a training plan for it. You need a way to 
really lay some solid reinforcement down for not chasing wildlife and also recalling from wildlife. And the collar that you buy, or whether you use a whistle, is less consequential than your training choices regarding that. So Aaliyah's next question is, and I'm going to go back to reading her script, we do all our decompression walks on a 30-foot long line, and I notice she tends to pull the first 10 to 15 minutes of the walk, then settles down and starts trotting and sniffing more. I think she's just excited, especially because we usually do these in the morning before I work, so she's just woken up and is psyched. She does this on neighborhood walks too, usually in the five minutes or so before she has to poop. So what should I do about this pulling? Aaliyah continues, I want to let it slide because it doesn't bother me much and I want to let her do her thing as much as possible during these walks. Is it okay for her to differentiate between some excited pulling and dragging me by bracing herself against the harness and pulling with all her might? Also, you know, will letting her pull a little in these scenarios damage her leash skills in general? Um, and then Aaliyah continues to talk about how the leash skills are important, like they are for, I think, most people. For me, um, I work hard on my longline handling skills to not allow my dogs to pull. Um, there is information in that regard in my Teenage Tyrants course, which happens to be open, will be open for registration at the time of, that this airs. So you might want to check that out. But in general leash pulling dogs can definitely read context so dogs that are trained to track in a in a harness and a long line can pull hard into that harness and then they can also walk nicely next to their handler through say an agility or an obedience trial i know these dogs my dogs understand that if they're on a collar and a leash they are expected not to pull at all um and then on a harness they are also generally not expe expected not to pull me because it hurts me so bad um, more than it hurts like a normal person that doesn't have my orthopedic problems but um generally speaking no is it going to carry over if you let it carry over so make sure that um you insist on loose leash walking when in the context where you where you need it and then allow the pulling out on your decompression walks if that's fine for you and a lot of dogs are kind of crazy at the beginning of the decompression walks and honestly the fact that she settles in about 15 minutes in is better than <laughs> what a lot of people are experiencing so Aaliyah I hope that this was helpful for you uh the next one comes from Helen and Helen says that it says I listened to your case study about tonic and the decompression walk aspect really resonated for me and my dog so I have a 15 month old male intact legato Romanolo, which I'm probably saying that wrong um, I have met this breed I have worked with this breed but I don't necessarily know how to say it <laughs> the dog's name is Bebo I had started doing decompression walks with him initially on a long line as I didn't trust him not to run off forever. But I realized that I can go to a space where he can be safe running totally off leash so I should trust him. So I have started letting him off leash at this beach. His recall is mediocre, but of course he doesn't run away forever and he's learning to come back to me periodically. When he comes back, I give him treats and lots of praise, but they need to be very high value food treats like cheese or hot dogs. Food scatters don't seem to work. The environment's too interesting. When he's off leash, he runs around so much, he's so fast and doesn't stop, just like Tonic did. And you guys, if you haven't listened to the Tonic case study, um, go back and listen to it, but essentially the dog would full on sprint for a long time and he it would take him a while to settle in and that's kind of what she's referencing. So 
she goes on to ask her questions. How long slash many months slash walks will it take for him to stop running and running? Will I ever see a trot? You may not. You have a sporting breed. Um, I think <laughs> the, the Logato is a sporting breed. So a lot of sporting breeds don't um, stop with their full on sprinting and running around until they're older. So it's not so much that it takes an hour for them to calm down. It's more that it takes a year or two. So you may not. It's I said in the podcast with Tonic that I wanted to see a trot from him, that that was important to me. That was me talking about one dog in one specific case. Your dog, I may not. And I haven't seen your dog on a decompression walk. And so I'm not sure the answer to that question. It sounds like the walks are going pretty well. Next question, our walks usually last between one to two hours. It seems that he has endless energy. I'm trying to look for the sweet spot, which you mentioned in your podcast, where they start to slow down or something. Can you talk about that a bit more? And once again, I'm going to say you have a young sporting breed. So a lot of them won't slow down. What you want to be looking for is at home, are your behaviors at home being affected the way that you want them to be affected? And if not, the dog might need more. Next question, I can't take him every day, so this off-leash place, I usually go two to three times a week. Um, Some days I don't walk him, as the urban area that we live in stresses him out. Or some days I walk him on a long line in a nearby park, which I can see isn't as great for him, but is okay. Does it matter that I'm not taking him every day to the off-leash beach, or should I try for a superhuman effort to make it happen every day? Helen, I'm not going to tell you you have to do it every day, but it probably is the key. So probably the dog does need it every day. That doesn't mean that you can make that happen. So I would try to do it as much as you can. You know, don't kill yourself over it. Don't lose sleep over it. Just try to do it as much as you can. And if, and I like that you're not walking him on a short leash in urban areas because that stresses him out. A lot of dogs really are stressed by that. And I think that's good. If the long line walk at the park suffices, then I would try to do one thing every day. So either the beach or the long line walk at the park. Um, And then Helen just kind of says, any other good tips for decompression walks? And I think that's kind of encompassed in this episode. So thanks for your questions, Helen. Next one comes from Ashley. How do we know when we've done enough decompression? After listening to the tonic episodes, so again, a reference back to that podcast, I started paying attention to when my young dog, a two-year-old Malinois, stopped sprinting on our decompression walks. He actually calms down fairly quickly, a minute or two of true sprinting tops, and then he will tend to trot and lope and only really run if he's fallen behind or if I change direction. We probably go on two to four, at least partially off-leash walks a week, anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple hours. He also comes running with me, leashed most of the time, plus gets agility training, plays with my other dogs in the yard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I also know that he can pretty much go indefinitely. 10 plus mile trail runs don't really wear him out. Yeah, that's a melanoma for you. He um, is reactive to other dogs and sometimes new people and is a generally nervous dude. I worry I'm not doing enough. What does enough look like? So again, enough is very circumstantial. It's, it very much depends on your behaviors at home that you're getting from your dog. So if you're seeing, you know, if I go, if I go three to five times a week with my dogs, I generally see better behaviors at home, meaning less arousal, less explosive behaviors, less conflict between them. If it drops under three, I see all those things increase. So that's what you need to look at is where's your data? What are you doing this for? And what what do you want to be seeing? Okay, so you guys, there is not one answer. And that's actually the overarching thing that I want to say in this episode. There is not a recipe. There is not one size fits all. My 12-year-old Border Collie could go twice a week 
and be happy, well-adjusted, fine. My five-year-old Border Collie would prefer daily. Um, he can handle five times a week. He can handle three if we're doing a lot of other stuff, but he'd prefer daily. It all depends on what behaviors at home are happening, what behaviors are home, at home are being affected or not by your walks. That's what everything depends on. So as far as waiting for a certain gait, again, that's going to depend on your specific breed, your specific situation. Most herding breeds are not going to sprint for hours and hours. Um, that's kind of not what they're made for. Most sporting breeds will because that is what they're made for. So just kind of think about that. So think about what dog do I have and what dog, what is my dog likely to need? And then what behaviors are being affected or not at home? So thank you all so much for a year of listening to Cog Dog Radio. I'll see you all in 2021. I suppose I won't see you, but I'll be in your earbuds. Um, I very much appreciate it and happy holidays. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.